Hi, crime junkies. It's Ashley here. And you all know how ready I am at any moment to drop down the rabbit holes of mysterious cases to look for answers. And there's actually one right now that I cannot stop spiraling about with more rabbit holes than I can count. In this season of Counterclock, investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra begins investigating Doug Wag Jr.'s mysterious death after he was found struck on a strip of railroad tracks. But the more Delia has dug into this case, the stranger things have gotten. And you guys, there is truly so much going on. A string of mysterious deaths, a bank robbery gone wrong, conspiracy, corruption, and it may all be connected. You can binge all of Counterclock Season 6 right now in the Crime Junkie Fan Club, or you can listen to new episodes weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by the Capital One Venture X Card. Earn unlimited 2x miles on everything you buy and turn everyday purchases into extraordinary trips. Plus, receive premium travel benefits like access to over 1,300 airport lounges and a $300 annual credit for bookings through Capital One Travel. Unlock a whole new world of travel with the Capital One Venture X Card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Lounge access is subject to change. See CapitalOne.com for details. Instead of costly private tutoring, IXL Learning can give your child the help they need at an affordable price. IXL is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. It's designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way with positive feedback. And you get one site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. There's a reason why IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And Crime Junkie listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash Crime Junkie. Visit IXL.com slash Crime Junkie to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hi, Crime Junkies. I'm your host, Ashley Flowers. And I'm Britt. And we are back with part two of our episode on the mysterious death of Joanne Matuk Romaine. This is possibly one of the most twisty stories I've ever come across in our four years of doing this show. So I'm telling you, you cannot just jump in here. Go back and listen to episode one. But here is a quick recap because I know there's a lot to process. In January 2010, police say Joanne Matuk Romaine went to a prayer service, then walked across the street down this snow-covered cement embankment into the freezing lake to take her own life. Mind you, she would have had to walk two football fields out into the water in those heels of hers to get deep enough to drown, but that doesn't seem to bother any of the officials. It also doesn't seem to bother them that despite their extensive search the very night she went missing, Joanne's body was discovered 70 days later, 35 miles away, even though there was no current that could have taken her that far, and there wasn't a single disturbance or scuff mark on her shoes. Finding her body just confirmed police's theory of a suicide, but the family was resistant and hired their own PIs and did their own autopsy and got all the records, which just opened up a floodgate that raised a zillion questions. The private autopsy, which by that time was the third autopsy, showed Joanne had died of a dry drowning, meaning there was no water in her lungs. She had contusions on her left arm, the same arm she usually carried her purse on, which was found torn. And then there's the timeline. All of the digital records show that police learned about Joanne's abandoned car half an hour after a full-on search was started. It all feels staged. And Britt, you ended the last episode with a great question. And here I'm actually going to play the end of the last episode so everyone gets it exactly. 
I don't like any of this, but just for the sake of argument, what if you said this was all some terrible clerical error, digital error, human error, error across the board, whatever. The times are wrong. What's important is that they got the search crews out there as soon as they knew a woman was missing. Do the times really even matter that much? Well, I think they do combined with everything else we know. Police looking for Joanne and not Michelle, who again, the car was really registered to. The missing keys turning up that no one can explain. And what if I told you that there was another missing persons report from that same day, same church parking lot, same lake that got zero attention? Listen, all of the facts in Joanne's case are baffling. But of all of the stuff that has been reported and re-reported, somehow this tidbit doesn't get the attention I think it deserves. Because this is the one thing that I read that made me like scream from the rooftops that nothing makes sense besides some big conspiracy. Because it's the one thing you can't explain away. So let me read you a direct quote from Scott Bernstein's second article in the Gross Point News from back in 2020. It says, quote, Quizzically, the call officer Andy Roger placed to the Coast Guard at either 9.30 or 10.30 p.m., depending on who you ask, was actually the second call regarding a missing woman in the water that the Coast Guard logged that evening. Another identical call came in at 6 p.m. reporting a woman going into Lake St. Clair by St. Paul's an hour earlier and her family in a frantic state looking for her. This was 80 minutes before Matuk Romaine went missing, end quote. The article goes on to say that Joanne was with people at this time. It couldn't have been her. And sure, maybe it wasn't her. Maybe it was someone else. Yet, quote, there were no other reports of a missing woman or anybody else going into the water in that vicinity made to any of the Gross Point Police or St. Clair Shores Police Departments that night. The Romains feel the first call is another sign of a cover-up. End quote. So just to clarify, the Coast Guard has this call on record, but the police have no reports to match it. Right. There is no explanation for it. And like I said, there was zero search effort for this other person as far as I can tell. Like, nada. So if this call was real and not somebody like missing their cue for this weird staged thing, which I can't even begin to explain, why not go looking for this woman? Why does that woman get nothing? And then like a couple of hours later on the same day under seemingly exact same circumstances, Joanne has an army out looking for her. I mean, I would assume they would say it has something to do with the footprints the officer said he found leading from the car or whatever, you know, into the lake. I mean, to be honest, I can't find anyone's official response to this question of what happened with this first call. That's part of why it's such a loose thread for me. Like, I obsess over it. But let's say it was the footprints. Let's talk about everything wrong with those for a second. When the family got the files, there were no photographs of women's high heel footprints. Not by the car, not by the water. Now, later, the officer who originally found them changed his testimony and said that they weren't by the car. They were actually by the road or by the water. My question is, what made you even go to the water in the first place? Honestly, this whole thing is really freaking hard to buy, even if there was a GD breadcrumb trail. Because, hang on, I need to show you this, Brett. You guys can all see this picture, too, if you're listening in the Crime Junkie app. So 
Here is the church. And to get to the water, you have to walk across a road, then walk across a median. And then across another road. Like, this is not what I was picturing at all. Yeah, so again, like, he's saying that there was no footprints by the car to begin with. But I'm saying even if there was, like, wouldn't you lose those across the road? Or it just doesn't make sense. Well, and like, it's a road. People could also be walking along a road. What's so weird about footprints along a road? Yeah. But anyways, that aside, they get these pictures and there are no high heel prints by the car. In part five of the Dateline Detroit story on this case, they said that there were work boot prints, but nothing that came close to matching Joanne's tiny size five feet and definitely no heels. And the very few photos that they do have from down by the water where police say she went in, there's nothing. I mean, like, there is something. It's like this mess of activity. It doesn't look like someone, to me at least, sat down, like, scooched down. But there's zero high heel prints. And I actually have a picture of that, too. I'll send to you. Hang on. Yeah, Ashley. So kind of on this note, the first snow we had, I was getting out of Justin's car on kind of like a slope, and I basically fell out. (laughs) I was also wearing pointy-toed flats, which was probably not the best option. And even though it looked like a horse fell out of his passenger seat, you could still tell that like I had very defined footprints once I did find my footing. I had pointy-toed flats on. You would be able to tell from this picture if there was anyone in tiny four-inch heels anywhere in the vicinity of this. Well, the one thing I will say about that is, like, to your point, you got your footing again and, like, got back up and moved. Like, again, if she, if she truly is, like, going down into the water, it would be a mess of activity. And I can see there not being any prints. But then it goes back to there's still not any prints. <laughs> right. Like, like she didn't, like, roll across the road either. She had to have walked across the road, across the median. Right. And they don't have any pictures of prints right, like, like that. Even, like, she would have had to walk at least close to the end of this embankment to scoot down. There's still no prints. Yeah. And listen, looking at this, I think you can definitely say like, oh, there's some activity happening down by the water. But like, I look at this picture and I mean, at least for me, granted, I'm not a trained officer, but my initial impression is not, oh my God, someone walked into the water and killed themselves. But even if, again, if you somehow, maybe this is something trained officers know, I don't know. But if that was your first impression, Teresa Baldez reported for the Detroit Free Press that there was no hole in the ice near that area. So Again, I ask you, tell me how any of this makes sense. I'm literally giving myself a headache and I can't imagine how the family feels because, I mean, can you even like put yourself in their shoes for like two seconds if this was your mother's story? Like, it's clearly so wrong. There is so clearly something else going on here and it feels like no one's listening. I mean, I agree there's something else going on, but what? Well, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? So did anyone ever look into the people on the family's list or were law enforcement so set on the suicide theory they didn't even do that? Well, at some point, one agency or another at least talked to these people who, just for a reminder, we had Joanne's husband, who she was separated from for years at that point and who was rumored to have been having an affair with her best friend. There was also connections that her brother John had to some seedy people, specifically one guy named Anthony, who he was said to have owed money to. And there was Joanne's cousin, Tim Matuk, who she told people she was afraid of in the weeks and months leading up to her disappearance. So Joanne's ex-husband had an alibi. He couldn't have been the one to physically do something to her. 
According to Scott Bernstein's reporting, he was actually at dinner with his two daughters around the time something is thought to have happened to her. Though, notably, he took a polygraph that was inconclusive and showed signs of deception, although everyone seems to think that he was lying about having an affair with her best friend, not about doing anything to Joanne, because two years after Joanne died, he was actually married to that very best friend. Now, John took a polygraph and passed. Again, I think that was more to see if he knew who could be responsible. And though it seems he doesn't, no one has ever ruled out the idea that his deaths or his relationships with unsavory people could have been the reason that this happened to Joanne. Oh, what about that Anthony guy connected to John? Well, interestingly, he has never been asked to take a polygraph. Police said that they talked to him and felt like he had nothing to contribute to Joanne's case. And actually, another person that's never been asked to take a polygraph, or at least according to the source material I have found, is Joanne's brother, Bill, which I find kind of strange because she seemed to have a decent amount of interaction with him before she went missing. Again, after years of them like not talking at all, and I'm kind of surprised that there wasn't more interest in their conversations. Like from his perspective, he says that all of the conversations were pretty benign, and I'm not saying he had anything to do with it, but it would seem important important to me to make sure he's 100% on the up and up about what they talked about. Right. So what about Tim? He seemed like the one the family was the most interested in at the time. I assume he talked to police and took a polygraph? Uh, they kind of talked to him. But honestly, the way police went about it raised even more suspicion that they were trying to cover something up. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams, or timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. Looking to save on delivery? DashPass from DoorDash is your door-to-zero-dollar delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. DashPass is an exclusive membership from DoorDash that gets you unlimited zero-dollar delivery fees on eligible orders and members-only deals and discounts. Whether it's food from your favorite restaurants, groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass is the most affordable way to get everything you need delivered right to your door. DashPass basically pays for itself in two orders on average. Plus, DashPass gives you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, all for only $9.99 a month. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. So remember how Gross Point Farms passed the case to Gross Point Woods? Yeah. Well, apparently, they then reached out to the state police not long after to ask them to step in, fearing that there might be some conflicts of interest. But they weren't just like, here's everything. Please take an impartial look at it. According to a deposition statement by one of the state troopers, the police reached out and specifically asked them to, quote unquote, clear Tim. And this trooper, she's like, um... 
we don't clear people. We investigate them. Like, that's not how this works. That's like, if that happens at the end of an investigation, yay. But we don't start with that, like, as the goal. Yeah. And it was so weird to her that she actually reported that to her supervisor. And they ended up declining to get involved in that specific area. Do not blame her. So I don't know how many times he was actually talked to or by whom. I did read that he never did agree to take a polygraph. But it's important to note that one of the PIs that the family hired has come out and said that he doesn't think Tim is being dishonest and he probably doesn't have anything to do with this. Tim has made a formal statement on his cousin's case stating, quote, On a very tragic night, the night Joanne went missing in January 2010, I was on duty working for a Michigan State Police Narcotics Task Force in Warren. My location that night has been verified and confirmed by testimony of Michigan State Police troopers and corroborated by cell phone records. After a lengthy five-year lawsuit, not one but two federal courts dismissed the case against me. Any allegations connecting me to the death of Joanne are false. End quote. Sounds like the state police might have a conflict with Tim, too. Yeah, seems like it to me. So what can you tell me about these lawsuits he's talking about in that statement? Well, Joanne's family ended up suing the police and a number of individuals alleging a cover-up by police. It went on for years, but ultimately, like Tim said in his statement, it was dismissed. Twice, actually, because they appealed the first decision. Though the judge did make an interesting comment in their ruling, stating, quote, There is no evidence that someone who wanted to kill Miss Romaine knew the police would cover it up. The court, however, acknowledges there are disputed facts in this matter that are very disturbing and remain unresolved. While the circumstances surrounding Miss Romaine's disappearance and death remain a mystery and, in fact, are somewhat suspicious, the fact is that the plaintiff fails to create a genuine issue of material fact to hold the police liable. End quote. So basically, yeah. It's all shady as hell, but you couldn't piece it together enough to tell us what it means, so we just have to dismiss it. Exactly. And honestly, it's the same problem I have when I keep looking at this case. The question's why? And how big is this whole thing? That's what really is tying me up. Like, something is definitely off, right? We all agree. That judge agrees. Something is very, very wrong here. People are being dishonest. But is everyone in on it? The Gross Point Farms Police, the Gross Point Woods Police, the Michigan State Police, the Coroner's Office, the Coast Guard. That is fucking everyone. Well, two coroner's offices, because didn't she have an autopsy in Canada, too? Yes. <laughs> Listen, I know there are corrupt cops. There are corrupt departments. There are corrupt agencies. But every single one of them in this area, that seems so far-fetched. Honestly, so terrifying. Yeah. But there is this one other piece that you need to know. Another agency that was involved. Oh, my goodness. Honestly, I want to tell you that it makes this whole thing make more sense, but it might just add more layers to this mystery. And it involves a meeting that Joanne might have had with the FBI before she vanished. The FBI? Are you kidding me? Nope. Scott Bernstein wrote in his coverage for this case that, quote, a highly placed source inside the Patrick V. McNamara Federal Building in Detroit says Matuk Romaine met with federal authorities at a restaurant in the days prior to her disappearance. That source said he fears that news of that meeting might have leaked, end quote. Now, no one on record from the FBI will confirm or deny that Joanne met with or had plans to meet with the agency. So maybe there is something huge there. But again, what? And what is so big that they're going to look the other way while all of these other departments cover up a murder? 
Okay, but what if they aren't looking away? What if they're conducting their own investigation? What do you mean? I, I mean, I feel like we've seen this before. There is a bigger fish, a bigger investigation. So smaller ones get shut down or kind of moved to the side to not blow some bigger, wilder, ongoing investigation. Yeah, but it's been 12 years at this point and nothing has happened. And again, I come back to what the heck is so big that every agency in the area is working together to cover it up? Or maybe the FBI is working with them to make this look like something else. Like, <laughs> I don't know what's happening. I'm sorry. Yeah, I feel like your brain is starting to short circuit like mine is. But I have one last thing to throw your way that involves the FBI in a way. And I'm literally telling you about this the way I found out about it. Like, I was in that point in my research where I thought, okay, this is this is it. I have to retire after this one because, like, I'm literally losing my marbles with this case. Like, I have to be wrong because stuff this big only happens on TV. And then literally, like, my last source material that I was, like, reading before I was like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump into writing. I come across another case that happened just months after Joanne that might have nothing to do with hers. But it echoes all of the same terrifying circumstances in the exact same area. So the same year Joanne went missing and was found. But in September, another Gross Point resident and local bank president, David Whitlock, went missing. Now, he was supposed to give his wife, who was traveling, a wake-up call on September 20th, but he never phoned in. Now, this was odd, but like so many other stories we've told, she didn't panic. She was an attorney. He is the president of a bank. She knew that they led busy lives. And honestly, part of her must have even guessed that maybe he wouldn't call because she also had the front desk at her hotel give her a wake-up call. So she went about her day. According to Naima Jabali Nash for CBS News, that same morning around 7 a.m., a maintenance worker at David's office building noticed his car parked at the office. And when they went to go see him, there were some overturned pieces of furniture and files in disarray in his office. The office employee phoned the police, who in turn called David's wife. Now, she was just about to turn off her phone and go into court when she got that call from police asking if she'd heard from him, which obviously had her rushing home to figure out what was going on. When police started looking into his disappearance, there was more than just that ransacked office to make them worried. According to Douglas Belkin's reporting for the Wall Street Journal, a 38 caliber revolver that belonged to David was missing from his office. And strangely, there was a brand new 38 semi-automatic still in its packaging that was left at the office. And was that purchased like recently? It was, but why he bought it, no one really knows. Like, this guy wasn't a gun nut by any stretch. So those who knew him, they figured something must have been going on in David's life to make him want extra protection. Next, police checked the surveillance footage from David's office building. Joe Swickard for the Detroit Free Press reported that it showed David leaving his office at around 8 p.m. the night of the 19th. And he was holding something in his arms, like a package or maybe a thick folder. He just left his car behind at the office and never showed up on camera again. Was he totally alone when he left? Yeah, which makes the question of who ransacked his office an odd one, right? Like, did he do that? Did someone come later? Like, there wasn't any reporting about whether or not anyone else was seen on footage in the building that could have done that. I mean, there was one other woman that we know was in the building that Sunday. It was actually a co-worker of David's, but she was totally cleared of any involvement. Days were turning into weeks and rumors began to spread. Rumors that David had a gambling problem before he moved to Michigan. According to a Business Insider article written by Katya Wachel, quote, Two former co-workers have said that Whitlock used to have a 3,000-a-day gambling problem in Vegas before he relocated to Michigan in the 90s. The sheriff slammed the allegations, and the acting CEO of the bank also said that Whitlock did not have gambling problems, end quote. 
People started talking about the bank's financial troubles. Maybe David had run off with money that he was trying to raise to save the bank. And some of it was true. The bank was in a bad spot. According to Douglas Belkin, the small community bank was, quote, significantly undercapitalized. David needed to raise something like $10 million to keep things afloat, but actually he was doing it. Before he went missing, things were looking up, and he was meeting with a bunch of potential investors and sourcing some good leads. That same Wall Street Journal article said that he had already had like eight of the 10 million secured. So for like a hot minute, everyone's like, well, maybe he just took the money and started over. But this was just a rumor because there was no money missing. But there was a clue in those meetings he was taking to get the money. Apparently, there was this one meeting that he took with a potential investor that had him worried. So worried that according to Joe Swickard, he had reached out to a retired FBI agent to set a meeting about some guys he'd met with. He didn't name names yet, but it seems like maybe he'd wanted to let someone know about something that he'd come across. What that might have been was hard to tell, though, because when police went to check his emails, work files, search history, all of that that goes into like a digital trail that might give them a clue, they found nothing. Not that everything was like innocent or had, you know, no clues, but like literally nothing was there. It seems that before David walked out of his office and into some vast abyss on September 19th, he or someone managed to erase most of his digital data that might help police. Mitch Hotz reported for the Oakland Press that his iPad, work computer files, and GPS were all wiped. According to the sheriff that was quoted in that article, quote, the experts we talked to say it was a sign of someone erasing his life. Something's not normal there, end quote. So they think he erased all of that? Well, it seems that way because officials begin to insinuate that this was a sign David walked away or could have been making preparations to take his own life. But if it was the latter, where was he? Well, that question would be answered less than a month after David went missing, when his body was found in the St. Clair Lake, the same lake police say Joanne first went into, and his death was ruled a suicide by drowning. But just like Joanne's case, David's family couldn't buy it. Not him, not the David they knew, and especially not knowing all the weird stuff that they found out about after he went missing. Like, for example, David didn't even know how to sync his devices. He definitely didn't know how to professionally wipe all of his data. They're saying someone else had to have done that. And what was he carrying out of the office building? No one ever found that package or file folder. And what the heck was this whole meeting with the FBI about? Surely that had something to do with it. So they paid for a second independent autopsy. And the results were a bombshell, or should I say, a bullet shell. Summer's almost here. Are you ready to throw open your windows or throw them away? If they're drafty, foggy, or impossible to open, talk to your friends at Window World. Window World specializes in home transformations with beautiful, energy-efficient windows, entry doors, and siding, featuring Energy Star certification and the good housekeeping seal. Call 1-800-WINDOW-WORLD, schedule your free consultation, and tell them you heard it here on Crime Junkie. Window World, America's exterior remodeler. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Spring is about fresh starts. That could mean starting a new venture or switching things up on your website. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. Use Squarespace to design a website, engage with your audience, and sell anything from products to time all in one place. 
With the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint, you can select from curated layout and styling options to create a personalized website optimized for every device. Get your website discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools. Plus, make checkout easy for customers with easy-to-use payment tools. Accept credit cards, PayPal, Apple Pay, and in certain countries, give customers the chance to buy now and pay later with Afterpay and Clearpay. Selling content on your website? Add a paywall to sell memberships or courses or sell downloadable files. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash crimejunkie to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Even though the first coroner, by the way, the same exact coroner who called Joanne's death a straight drowning right when her body was brought back to Michigan from Canada and totally dismissed the fact that there was no water in her lungs and there were contusions on her arm. Even though that same guy said that this was a drowning too and likely a suicide, the second coroner found a freaking bullet hole in the back of David's neck and the bullet still lodged in his head, the angle of which many reports called, quote unquote, execution style. However, Gross Point police aren't so quick to jump to the idea that this was an execution. They said that they were still going to investigate it as a potential homicide, but that suicide was still possible. I'm sorry, hold up. How do you miss a bullet hole and a bullet still inside someone's head during an autopsy? This is where you can get real conspiratorial. The most innocent explanation is laziness or like really poor job performance. I don't have any copies of the actual autopsy report, but if there was maybe water in this guy's lungs, then... I mean, not that this coroner would even check for that because we know he didn't before. Right, but let's say he learned a lesson from Joanne's case and checked and there was water in there. You know, maybe he's found water and it's like, meh, good enough, case closed. If you don't believe that this was just, you know, again, laziness or incompetence, well then someone didn't want anyone to know that he was shot and wanted this whole thing to just go away. Okay, but that would be such a risk. Again, what, like nine, ten months ago, you had another family do their own autopsy. You're gonna look so shady or at the very least, like, a fool if you miss this. I mean, I don't disagree. Did he ever have to explain himself? Kind of, but the explanation is very unsatisfying. I guess at first he kind of alluded to it being like bad equipment that he had at his lab, but I don't think that the higher-ups appreciated that very much because then he had to do this whole press conference where he was like, no, 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 stuff I have is great. I'm given all the tools I need to do my job. Just the way that the bullet was in his head was like, it was blocked when I did the x-ray. It's like a total fluke. Okay, but someone else was able to find it. Yeah, and and again, like, I like to say the hole was still there, right? Like, in the back of his neck, like... Yeah, like, something you should notice, I guess, in my opinion. Yeah, so, I listen, either they're hiding something or this guy is just really bad at his job. I don't know. Anyways, they searched the water again after this new cause of death was determined, and they found a gun registered to David in the water six feet from where his body was found. This is the same gun that was missing from his office. So is that significant? Like, was his body lodged somewhere, or could he have floated further away from it? So I couldn't find any detailed reports of exactly how he was found, or if there was no current or anything that would have moved it, like in Joanne's case. There are just references to this fact throughout some of the articles that I do have where journalists point out that it's strange that it's six feet away. Some allude to this as proof he couldn't have shot himself, but they don't provide details to back that up. So I really don't have enough information to weigh this piece of evidence properly. But the police and the coroner must have believed it was still at least possible that he shot himself because ultimately the manner of death is ruled indeterminate. 
And the case was still kind of treated like a, well, it could be anything. So did anyone do any tests to see if the angle of the shot was even possible to be self-inflicted? You said earlier some reports were saying it was like execution style. Well, I don't think there are any like CSI reconstructions done, but the coroner who did the independent autopsy told the Detroit Free Press that suicide was possible, but would have taken a freaking contortionist to pull off. And listen, that's all, folks, in David's case. There are no more answers today than there were back in 2010. And you know who predicted that? Bill Matuk, who was quoted in a 2010 Detroit Free Press article about David. He said, quote, maybe it will be the same way in our case. We're just never going to know, end quote. Wait. Why was Bill in this article about David? I mean, was it about both cases? They did happen same lake, kind of no. same time? No, it was just about David. But apparently they knew one another, at least casually, because I think David frequented the wine store maybe more. I don't know. So we have two people, same town, same lake. We know they were connected at least by family acquaintances, both rumored to have met with the FBI before going missing. Both deaths ruled suicide by drowning, both autopsies wildly wrong by the same coroner, and both cases still completely unresolved. Yeah, I don't know if they have anything to do with one another, but it's hard not to go looking for answers in every other case that feels even a little similar when answers are so hard to come by. And do you want to know like one more thing about Joanne's case that is super weird? Or are you like on overload already? <laughs> I mean, any good crime junkie isn't going to be able to turn down an offer like that. So lay it on me. Okay, so back when Michelle and her team had gotten the records from police, they actually found out about a couple of witnesses who might have seen some really critical things, but police kind of just dismissed them. The first was a woman who, according to Karen Drew for Click on Detroit, saw a man running down the road near the church at 750. She described what he was wearing, which included this, like, scarf. Well, police actually found a scarf on the road that matched what the witness described. They collected it. They put it into evidence. But just like with Joanne's car, they said there was nothing to suggest foul play or warrant any, like, testing of the scarf. Okay, maybe not then, but what about now? Well, coulda, woulda, shoulda, because they don't have it now. They gave the scarf to Goodwill in 2015. They gave a piece of evidence to Goodwill. Mm-hmm. Well, that just made all of my thrifting trips a lot weirder. What? Could they even do that? I didn't know that that was something they did. And again, in their minds, they were like, oh, well, again, we've closed the case. We called it a suicide. But you also did that forever ago. And you're like in all this litigation with the family. Like, I don't, why? What's the harm in keeping a scarf in a box? That's all we're asking you to do. Yeah. Well, anyways, they're like, sorry, it's gone. Now, the other witness statement is possibly even more infuriating. The family found out that a week after Joanne went missing, so again, way before her body's even found, a man named Paul Hawk was watching the news and saw Joanne's story. And right away, he went into the police station and described a disturbing scene that he saw the day she disappeared. According to Dateline Detroit, on that night, he was traveling north on Lakeshore Drive and he saw a heavyset woman in all black sitting on the break wall of Lake St. Clair. He said she was sitting really still and she was kind of like slumped over. And he said that he saw two vehicles illegally parked on the road and one of them matched a description of Joanne's car. There were two men that he said were standing near the cars and one of them like motioned for him to just like, come on, keep passing through, like nothing to see here, go on. So honestly, this is the first thing that fits what we know about the case, at least a little bit. It explains the disturbances in the snow, 
why one of the witnesses who was at the same prayer service as Joanne said she came out and the parking lot was empty, didn't see the Lexus at all. Yeah, and to this guy's credit, like, he's coming with this a week after she goes missing. So this is long before, like, the public would know any of this information. Right. But it still doesn't give us, like, the why of it all. It just starts to piece it together a little bit. So was this guy able to give a description of the guys he saw? Well, kind of. You see, he grew up playing football with the Matuk brothers, and he thought that it was actually John Matuk he saw. But years later, in 2012, he said that he actually ran into John at a bar and realized that he was confused. So at that point, he worked with a sketch artist that the family had hooked him up with and apparently did like this composite sketch. And that composite sketch was a closer match to Tim Matuk. Okay, but that's two years in between the sighting of these guys by the road and the drawing. Plus, he's seen John, so he knows that's not what he looks like or what he remembers, supposedly. Plus, by this time, the family has already had their suspicions of Tim, right? Right. And again, Tim Matuk had an alibi. Remember, he was on duty with the state police working surveillance. Though something that the family always points out and something that I do find interesting is that no one had actual eyes on him. He was on that stakeout and he was available by radio. And as far as we know, there wasn't any point where like people couldn't get a hold of him. That's why they testified to him being on duty. But even if that's a little sus, like his cell records show that he was in Warren too. So there is a lot putting him there and not near where Joanne went missing. Unless someone kept his cell for him. Girl, you can spiral all day on stuff like this. (laughs) Trust me, I have been in this hole for weeks. But it goes back to why. Why is everyone sticking their neck out to cover up this crime if there is a crime to cover up? But I get why people are stuck on this thing, because in the back of my head, I'm like, this all can't be a coincidence. If something is just too big to believe, that's not a reason to write it off. I feel like that judge who said, like, yes, all of this is wrong, but for what? Give me any explanation. Honestly, I'll take anything because nothing makes sense anymore. So I assume because Tim had an alibi, this guy's witness statement doesn't really mean much to anybody. Well, I don't even think the alibi is the reason they wrote it off. I mean, Remember, it wasn't Tim in his mind until two years later. He came into the station a week after Joanne went missing, and police wrote it off pretty much right then. And the reason they did that was because they said it didn't matter who he saw because it never happened. Or if it did, whatever he saw had nothing to do with Joanne's case because they say in his initial statement that he said it was dusk when he saw this. But we know that Joanne left the prayer service at about 7.15, which, Britt, you and I know, like, Michigan in January at 7.15, it's like dark as midnight. Pitch black, yeah. Right. Now, that witness, Paul Hawk, died just this past December in 2021. So there won't be any more statements from him about it. There wasn't any info online about how he died, but it likely wasn't linked to the case at all. A lot can happen in 12 years, and it's all the more reason to push for justice sooner rather than later. I don't know what's next for the Romaine family in their fight for justice. I follow their Facebook page, which we're going to have linked right here in the show notes. And I suggest you follow as well, because if this case makes you as mad as it has made me over the last few weeks, I'm sure there's going to be a time when the family needs your help and we all want to be ready for them. You can find all of the source material for this episode on our website, crimejunkiepodcast.com. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at crimejunkiepodcast. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. 
Crime Junkie is an audio Chuck production. So, what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you're anything like me, when you have something weighing on your mind that's taking up time and energy, the best thing you can do is to talk about it. But sometimes, that's also one of the hardest things to do, too. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Crime Junkie today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Crime Junkie. Parenting hack. The second your baby starts standing, get them in Pampers Cruisers 360 diapers. Pampers Cruisers 360 have a 360-degree stretchy waistband that makes diaper changes easy. And they're harder for your baby to take off because they don't have traditional diaper tabs. Also, try new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes made from 100% plant-based cloth that grips mess and is five times stronger. Add Pampers Cruisers 360 and Free and Gentle Wipes to your cart or pick them up at your local big box store.